Rob Nixon is a nonfiction writer and the Barron Family Professor in Environmental Humanities at Princeton. He's the author of four books, most recently Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor. He's currently writing a book on environmental martyrs and the defense of the great tropical forests. He writes frequently for the New York Times, as well as The New Yorker, Atlantic Monthly, The Guardian, The Nation, among others. His writing engages environmental justice struggles in the global south with a particular interest in understanding the roles artists can play in affecting change. Rob Nixon, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Hello, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks, Mia. We're very honored. I believe we're just giving you a taste of uh, a work in progress, Blood at the Root. Yes, this is a book about environmental martyrdom um, and uh, the defense of life. Uh, and the focus is very much on forest communities who have sacrificed so much in the defense of their lands, their cultures, and their forest-based ways of life. Um, and I'm going to read a, a brief section from, from the, this book in progress. And it's about uh, the environmental martyr Amrita Devi and the so-called Bishnoi martyrs. On September 12th, 1730, Amrita Devi is busying herself with chores around her village home. Suddenly, she observes from across the stark Thar desert, a dust storm kicked up by a band of approaching men. What Devi doesn't know yet is this. The Maharaja of Jodhpur has determined that he needs a new palace. To that end, he has sent his men to fell trees in Devi's Bishnoi village. 15 miles away. Her village lies in arid Rajasthan, which in the India of the future will become the nation's largest state. Yet despite the harsh terrain, by 1730, the village has gathered renown for the hundreds of trees encircling the community. Amrita Devi notices that the Maharaja's advancing men all carry axes. When the first man raises his axe to cut down a kedgeree tree, Devi wraps her arms around the trunk and reputedly declares, a chopped head is cheaper than a felled tree. The unnamed man swings his axe in one blow, decapitating Devi and slicing into the living body of the tree. Devi's three daughters rush forward and hug the neighboring trees, hoping to stay their execution. The axemen slice off the daughters' heads as well. Word goes out to 83 neighboring Bishnoi villages that a massacre of sacred trees has begun. From all directions, protesters pour in. But the Maharaja's men proceed undeterred. They keep felling trees and those who hug them. Day's end. 294 men, 69 women, and innumerable Kedri trees lie dead, sprawling in the desert dust. When the Maharaja's men return to his palace, bloodied and exhausted, their master flies into a rage. What took them so long? And why have you only brought one third of the timber? I demanded. When they explain what happened, the Maharaja travels to, to Bishnoi village. He's appalled by the butchery his actions have unleashed. He promises the surviving Bishnoi that heretofore he will honor their beliefs. 
He will leave their woodlands and their wildlife unscathed. The Khetri tree that the Maharaja's men assaulted is no ordinary tree. It's a life force vital to community survival and to the desert's always precarious ecological integrity. The Khetri tree anchors the region's agroforestry. It stabilizes sand dunes, enhances soil fertility, provides shade for understory crops. Fallen leaves serve as mulch for the agroforestry crops shielded by the canopy. Villagers gather wood from dead Kedri for fuel and construction materials. Moreover, the Kedri's deep roots render the tree drought resistant. According to one recent scientific report, the Kedri can withstand temperatures of 120 degrees Fahrenheit, four inches of annual rain, and burial in sandstorms. During the blistering summers, the Kedri trees bear fruit that can make the difference between life and death for villagers and their animals. Vishnoi territory also provides sanctuary for the endangered blackbuck. Once prized as royal game, the species hangs on by a thread. In all India, only 25,000 blackbuck survive. Poachers from outside the community eye the unmolested Vishnoi blackbuck greedily. When in 1986 a hunter killed a buck, a young man called Nihal Chand gave chase and was shot dead by the poacher. The village elder praised his actions for carrying forward the values of the past. The young man, said Prahlad Ram, quote, is now among our greatest martyrs. He is a true descendant of Amrita Devi and the others who died with their arms around our great friends, the trees. The story of the Bishnoi martyrs reminds us that environmental resistance has deep and varied genealogies. Tree hugging wasn't invented in California circa 1975. It's a practice with many beginnings arising through a kind of cultural co-evolution. As one forest dependent community after another has responded to forest plunder and land theft, the Bishnoi and myriad other indigenous communities depend on forest access for their survival. In times of attack, that dependence often finds physical expression through tree hugging, an act that converts environmental knowledge into intimate embrace. To wrap your arms around a tree is to hold on to a fellow being who shapes the very terms of your survival. Human trunks press up against tree trunks, human limbs, grasp tree limbs. Such gestures become at once environmental, existential, and deeply emblematic. Thank you for reading that. It's so moving and it really uh, reminds us um, of this unfortunate truth in this imperfect world that we live in that some lives are just not considered as worthy of our attention and respect. When you uh, quote that a chopped, a chopped head is cheaper than a felled tree, or you've heard some activists have you know, spoken of themselves, I'm worth more dead. You know, that's how they can bear witness with their, their life and um, call attention to whatever their cause is. And it's so sad that it, it's not a new story. It's been going centuries that people have been, um, you know, standing up for nature and 
and um, their their homes like this. Um, what is it that drew you to become involved in the environmental humanities, um, and how you could join your your dispersed interests into that particular? What set you on that path? Yeah, so I could. So I grew up in South Africa, and um, when I was a, when I was a boy, I wanted to become an ornithologist. So my birds were my passion and my expertise. Um, and then when I went to college in South Africa, I majored in African languages and I became sort of immersed in anti-apartheid politics and, and eventually had a military call up and left. Uh, I went into exile in the US. And so I've now lived most of my life in the US. But once I got immersed in African languages and uh, got to a more texted understanding of the politics of the place I was growing up in, uh, in, somehow, in some ways it tainted my relationship to the environment because um, the environment was subject to um, the, the politics of the time. In other words, there were zones of exclusion where white, white, a white boy like me could roam freely um, but if I'd been, you know, of a different race or a different gender, I wouldn't have had that access. And so by the time I got to New York, where I did my PhD with Edward Said, um, I, had, I had almost uh, completely rejected that link to, that early link to uh, the environment, my, my, my passions for the natural world. I set that aside completely for maybe about 15 years. Uh, because it seemed entirely corrupted by the politics that governed that environment. And so I um, trained as a post-colonial scholar. Uh, Edward Said was my, my supervisor. And a turning point for me was um, the assassination of Ken Sarawiwa in Nigeria in 1995. Um, and Ken Sarawiwa had described the attack on the his only people who lived in the Niger Delta and the landscape, the mangrove forest in that region, as a form of ecocide. Uh, it was a cultural assault and it was an ecological assault. And so I, I taught Ken Sarawi was, and, and then he and he and eight other protesters were executed for their for their attempt to defend the Niger Delta against uh, the, the the oil pollution the unregulated oil pollution coming from Shell, Chevron, and the Nigerian oil company. Um, so what, what really struck me was that here was an African writer invoking in environmental values. Uh, and that to me was something quite new um, because typically Africans, uh, particularly I would say in East Africa and Southern Africa, their primary experience of uh, environmentalism was of people, NGOs or uh, wealthy people flying in from Geneva or Paris or London or Washington DC and telling them to get off land in order to conserve a uh, big game for, uh, so, so there was very little acknowledgement at that point uh, in Western environmental movements of what, 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 what uh, um, people have called the environmentalism of the poor that people are living dependent on ecosystems develop over centuries and millennia a relationship to the resources and the spirits of that particular land 
or water for that matter. So in 1995, I taught my first environmental justice course um, with Rachel Carson in, and uh, Derek Jarman and uh, Ken Sarweaver. And uh, since then, so I've been teaching in this field for about 25 years. Um, and I would say that one of the, so environmental justice, for those who, who may be familiar with it, is basically looking at um, inequalities in access to resources and unequal burdens of um, harm, unequal burdens of toxicity, for instance. So it's, it's both do communities have access to, uh, to leisure, to green spaces, to the resources that the, the wealthy have, and why and how can we redistribute the fallout of our actions as societies uh, more equally? so that we don't have um, uh, zip codes where it's, uh, where children are disproportionately likely to get asthma from uh, emissions. And also uh, in relation to climate, uh, low-lying islands, uh, the desert nations of the Sahel, uh, how they um, are disproportionately uh, burdened with the the, the carbon uh, intensive uh, commodity lives that um, people in the richer nations have been living for a long time. So that was basically the arc uh, of my thinking. And so I came, I, I, I started in the environment, then I moved to post-colonial studies. And now I'm in a sort of dialectical movement, I think inspired by Kenzo Weaver, I found a way to reconcile those two concerns. Um, and, and now the, the world slowly, gradually is coming around to this environment, it's environmentalism for all, not, I mean, environmentalism for the poor, but it's not this kind of, um, the environment as our property, which just seems like a twisted kind of environmentalism. Yes, yes, yes. So I think um, a couple of things that I, I do find encouraging is there's more of a recognition of um, the profound indigenous knowledge bases that uh, are not only salient to them in terms of protecting their um, ecosystem-based cultures, but also offer imaginative portals into other ways of thinking and being, uh, unlike the sort of deeply extractivist uh, carbon intensive models that pre predominate that predominate today. So if I, if I could say one thing about the field that is encouraging to me is that for a long time, particularly perhaps in the US, environmentalism was about spaces where people aren't, about wilderness, the absence of people. Uh, but that's a very limiting model, both because the US is very likely populated relative to say Indonesia or China or India or Nigeria, um, it's a likely populated country and it's a very wealthy country. And so it doesn't really offer a blueprint for environmental uh, action um, in, in other parts of the world, in Europe included, in fact, yeah. Yeah, we have to live, find out how to live in harmony. And I do so much like, and perhaps you could share some of those relationships with nature that you've, um, been able to learn from indigenous people um, this 
the whole idea, the concept, the Western concept is that we're civilized and nature is wild and we own it or we have to tame it. No. Is, um, yes. Yes. I, actually, that's the, probably the barbaric idea. But just tell us a little bit about your experiences um, and what you've learned from in, indigenous knowledge. Yeah, so what I, what I would say is that um, obviously there, there are thousands upon thousands of different indigenous cultures across the world, but there are some recurrent threads. And one of those is this idea that we don't own the land, the land owns us. And so it, it's not seen as property first. It, it's seen as inalienable in that sense um, because you don't own it in the first place. So what we're seeing now um, is a kind of uh, a movement where in, more and more Indigenous people are living kind of amphibious lives. So on the one hand, they have their Indigenous cosmologies. On the other hand, in order to um, increase the likelihood that they can keep out um, um, big corporations, uh, mining corporations, forest uh, logging corporations, and so forth. Um, they need their their presence on the land needs to be bureaucratically recognised, and the way to do that is to uh, have a have recognition that this is your property. Okay, so in one sense, there many many of these communities I find um, are both inside and outside private property regimes. Uh, they're inside it because they 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 don't want this um, forest that they inhabit to be marked on the map as empty or as unowned. But at the same time, in a sense, they're having to think the opposite, which is what their culture tells them, um, that um, we're owned by the land. We don't own the land. It's not, it's not um, ownable in that private way. Yes, I've had some conversations of people who are being uh, like a bridge, like you, like um, Martin von Hildebrand was telling mm -hmm. me how he had to really convince some people in the Amazon that they own it because the, the idea of a piece of paper <laughs> and having to sign that, right. it's a stretch, right? Yes. Uh, and one, I remember one, there was one uh, Amazonian indigenous leader who said, he said, there's all this paper and there are, there's this money, but it's nothing but dead leaves. What we want is to, we want to keep the trees alive. We don't want your dead leaves. You know, that was one image. <laughs> it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, on the other hand, I'm so happy that there's uh, earth law and these movements, whether it's in Ecuador or New Zealand and, 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 and also interpreted in different ways all over, and in America, but not, quite in the constitution uh, yet, um, that, that we do have these pieces of paper standing up for, for nature, because as you say, you know, you focus on the human rights and the human relationship to nature, but also mm -hmm. the trees themselves and the rivers themselves. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and so there's, there's a sense of, a, of an ongoing symbiotic relationship between the communities and the forests. Um, and in fact, just this week, there was a, a very significant ruling by the High Court in Ecuador uh, in favor of a, um, a, an indigenous forested area uh, that was going to be mined. And uh, they used the rights of nature clause in the Ecuadorian constitution to um, actually prevent 
the corporations from going in and mining. So it's actually getting some traction in some places. In other places, it's 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 symbolic, but still charged. I mean, in Toledo, Ohio, um, the uh, community members uh, uh, voted to uh, institute the rights of the lake, uh, the Great Lakes. So the Great Lakes themselves would have rights. Um, and, you know, that's a pretty blue collar town uh, historically. Um, and they decided that the, the, the health of the lake was so endangered and the health of the lake was intimately connected ultimately to the health of the community. So that was another example of how this, this uh, Ecuador-led initiative has um, snowballed well beyond uh, indigenous communities uh, to other parts of the world. And I think that it's also, I know with, you know, as you mentioned, you know, um, you know, blue collar workers, maybe not being the first environmentalist, but also realizing that enacting earth laws was a way to assert their rights because it was hard to prove that maybe you're potentially being poisoned by this local industry. But if you're defending the rights of the this river or this you know, this area not to be poisoned, then also it has this effect and then your water system isn't poisoned in return. Yes, yes. And so I think it, it also has a psychological effect in that it uh, removes the river or the forest from the status of commodities in waiting. In other words, sort of a, as, as, as inanimate and it returns to them the sense of their vitality and their animacy and their agency in shaping the quality of human life as well. And so I think that, I mean, for me, the most encouraging thing that I've seen in the field that I work in is the movement of environmental justice from the outskirts, from the perimeter of what most people think of as environmentalism, closer to the center. And so I think like um, the Green New Deal in the US um, the Black Lives Matter movement that has focused on breath links very clearly to these questions of discriminatory histories, discriminatory legislation um, that, that results in unequal exposure of, of different communities. So I think that now the, the link between environmental health and public health is much more taken for granted than it was even. 20 years ago. How do you see the policy landscape of this uh, environmental justice carrying forward over the next generation or so? Are you optimistic for the, the efforts of people in movements like the Sunrise Movement? Because I know there have been many movements that have come up in the past where you see things kind of fizzle out. Do you think we're at a juncture now where this notion of environmental justice can be carried forward and become a real part of the public discourse in the country and around the world? Yes, I do think so. I think it varies from country to country, but in, in the U.S., Certainly, I feel like the um, those who are promulgating uh, climate doubt 
for instance, um, you know, there's a book called Doubt is Their Product. And so we, the, 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 there were these conservative and very often uh, conser conservative think tanks, conservative uh, donors, who were very often linked to coal production, to big oil and so forth, who were funding, who were bankrolling climate doubt, like um, is the science in yet? Um, where it's too early to tell whether climate change is actually exacerbating these, um, the, these uh, disastrous weather events. Uh, now that is really abating. And, and obviously that was always more acute in the US than anywhere else. Um, in other parts of the world, climate doubt simply didn't have the, the same institutional backing uh, and, the, and the deep pockets that uh, it had in the US. But I think things have shifted now quite significantly, whether, it, whether it's soon enough or not, or whether it's too late is, is another question. Uh, the, other, the other source of, of, of hope there is that generationally, um, people's priorities have shifted massively so that if you look at the under 25s in the US, um, climate breakdown is a much more, um, pressing issue for them than it is for the over 65s. Um, similarly, I think with the demographic shift in the US, uh, with the younger generations being more diverse, uh, they're also more, in some sense, more globalized and more connected to these international movements where young people are campaigning for quite similar things, uh, com people coming from very, very different backgrounds uh, and, and different societies are coming together um, to a degree that they haven't even, you know, in the, in the height of the environmental movement in the, in the 70s and 80s, say, in the US. So I do think there's, there's a big, big shift. And it's also become, courtesy of environmental justice, it has become more enfolded into other pressing concerns like inequitable housing, inequitable zoning, the question of reparations, all of these are uh, woven into the environmental movement now to a degree that they weren't. So that I do find hardening is uh, both a generational shift and a more kind of integrated response where environmentalism isn't just uh, something off to the side that we're going to leave to the, the, the dippy hippies kind of thing, you know. Exactly. And I'm, it's so good to see it coming to the center. And we think about even issues like in America, um, the border wall, uh, this, mm -hmm. these kind of things that are related. Maybe it's not exactly clearly related to climate, but refugees and immigrants who are leaving their countries it's right. for conflicts or due to climate, no yeah. longer able to farm yes. their lands, etc. Yeah. yeah, I think that um, the you know, the, the climate, the combination of strife, of, of conflict, and uh, climate exacerbated droughts and floods and so forth come together. And there's no question that both of those things um, increase vulnerability. And when people are vulnerable, they try to move. Uh, yeah. My name is Phil Kehoe, and I'm currently enrolled in the Masters of Public Administration program at New York University's Wagner School of Public Service, with a concentration in international development policy and management. I'm an associate environmental podcast producer and interviewer for the Creative Processes One Planet podcast. I believe we are at a critical juncture of the climate crisis, 
where the concepts of environmental justice and income inequality will greatly exacerbate differences in communities for response, adaptation, and resiliency. In our conversation, renowned author and professor of environmental humanities, Rob Nixon, covers several examples from throughout history of environmental activism, from the sacrifice of Amrita Devi and the Bishnoi martyrs, to oil exploration in the Niger Delta, noting that these struggles are often long and protracted. Many of these struggles continue to this day, as people living in downstream communities are often faced with the consequences of environmental degradation and pollution through no fault of their own. Nixon's previous work, Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor, details the notion that, often, the impacts of environmental violence are not felt in the immediate, but over the long term, through generations, through both public health and the perpetuation of poverty in impacted communities. Such can be seen in the public health crisis stemming from the presence of toxic pollutants in communities downstream of chemical companies or in the displacement of indigenous communities due to deforestation in the Amazon rainforest. In the latter half of our conversation, Nixon discusses a path forward in the environmental justice movement and reflects on the trials and resiliency of past and current activists to forge a better and more equitable future for all. A glimmer of hope and optimism that we have the wherewithal and ability to create positive change. With that, let us rejoin the conversation. And so what lessons can we learn from, I mean, you've, you've gathered uh, these stories of these important environmental heroes and environmental martyrs. So what can, what can we learn from them? What have you learned from them and how has that you know, been inspiring to, to your work? Yeah, so I think one of the one of the things that we we need to pay attention to is, I think particularly in the university, often we come from a secular set of assumptions, and if we look at where these most vulnerable communities are, they're mostly in the kind of midriff of the earth, the tropical regions which are heavily forested, are ethnically diverse. Um, and therefore, the people, those cultures are often very, uh, very vulnerable to attack. They can be uh, easily isolated. So this, this, what I've learned is the effectiveness of uh, international coalitions that bring together what's sometimes called land defenders and environmentalists. Um, and so that, that uh, these, these international organizations, I think, are doing a remarkable job. So we have things like Global Forest Watch, Global Witness, sometimes human rights organizations, as well as uh, in, in more traditionally or environmental organizations, uh, trying to share information. We see uh, with new technologies, uh, uh, surveillance technologies, drones, and so forth, uh, groups who in the, the threatened forest communities are training local people in the use of these technologies so that um, if if people are, are illegally burning protected land so forth, they can document it and centralize that bank of data and use it uh, as evidence in the courts so they're not those communities then become less dependent on sort of external expertise and how, how do you think we can carry these lessons forward and and move past a point at least in the 
American uh, public discourse to go beyond the notion of just raising awareness? How do we turn this notion that we should be recognizing all of the sacrifices of these environmental martyrs into potentially more collective substantive action? Is there a, a question of, of, of sanctions against the, these countries that are allowing this to happen? Is it a matter of regulatory fines for these corporations that are perpetrating the, these issues? Would love to hear your yeah. thoughts on potentially turning this recognition into further action. Sure. So if we, if we think, it's a, it's a good question, I, I, if we think of the point where uh, climate breakdown meets deforestation and the threat to indigenous communities, um, one of the things that one learns is that very often with these communities, what they, what they encourage us to do, the, the citizens of the wealthy nation, is to um, expose the hypocrisies of these mega corporations that are often wealthier than the countries the entire nations are working in i mean the, the scale of them is is so huge we think of rio tinto or some of these these really big international mining companies um and so what sarawiwa did in nigeria in 1995 was he's saying listen shell has one set of operating procedures in europe and an entirely different set in nigeria so if you're working in the so-called um, uh, developing world, um, corporations can get away with, with um, unjust and um, discriminatory practices. Uh, and so the, the regulatory bar is so much lower. So it seems like one corporation, but it's actually operating differently in Scotland and than, than Nigeria. And so one of the things that people are trying to do is to level that up and to say a corporation should have a global set of procedures and you cannot assume just because you're working in a poorer country um, that you can uh, behave with, with a different level of recklessness, both towards the current inhabitants and the future inhabitants. So I, th I think that is one, one point. Um, the other point that I saw in when I was living in Wisconsin there was a zinc mine up in a place called Crandon. There was projected projected zinc mine, and it kept passing from Australian corporations to Canadian corporations to South African corporations. So these mega mining corporations were 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 buying it and trying to get the permission to um, to to mine there. And so what the local indigenous communities, the Chippewa, did was they brought in communities from across the Americas that had worked with this company previously. And they said, oh, this is what they said coming in. This is how many jobs they promised. This is what they didn't do. And this is how they brought people with them. And in fact, didn't provide local employment. And then a group of um, sports fishermen who, who were attached to the river that was going to be affected by the mine, um, a group of uh, um, environmentalists, and, a, and some indigenous leaders traveled the state of Wisconsin from, from uh, um, church to church, from uh, uh, town hall to town hall, saying, listen, we come from very different backgrounds, but we agreed that this mine is a terrible thing for the state. Uh, and so this combination of getting testimony 
from people who'd been given this pablum of how wonderful the company is going to be, how beautifully they're going to restore the environment, how many jobs they're going to create. So you had people witnessing from different parts of the world on that. And then you had this local grassroots initiative of saying, you know, on this issue, we can come together. This, this river needs to be protected. And they won. Um, so I, I do take heart from that. It, you know, it's often labor intensive, but, but there, are, there are models out there for how we can, we can bridge the divides. And that's wonderful that uh, sometimes I wonder because I am an artist and, and, and writer at my foundation and sometimes we do wonder about how the importance of stories or how we can use our imagination for servicing. Yeah. Um, and so I'm glad that you're able to bring this together as well because stories are so important. And I want to go back to that question of regulation because sometimes I, I believe regulations are, are good, but sometimes it's also uh, used as a way to um, paper over what's being done, like an equalizer. Like we interviewed the Forest um, Stewardship Council, mm -hmm. and I know there's a bit of controversy around that. We know we need regulation, mm -hmm. but is it really telling the whole story? And is it just sometimes it's a logo people want to bear and then they're not really fulfilling what it sure. means? No, I think uh, somebody said recently that um, it's not a bad time to be an oil corporation at the moment, but it's a bad time to look like one. Uh, and uh, so, you know, there is so much, so many millions and millions going into, into greenwashing or rebranding, uh, you know, and, and um, BP in the, early in the 21st century, you know, decided to rebrand re itself as um, from British Petroleum to Beyond Petroleum. And then people pointed out that they were spending something like, uh, I think it was 50 times as much on the um, rebranding exercise and, and the, in the public domain than they were actually investing in renewables, you know. Uh, so, and I think there are a lot of examples of this where um, the getting the public off your back and, and seeming uh, sunnier than you actually are um, is, is, is a, is a full-time business for, for many of these uh, corporations. Yes, and I think that another issue is, I mean, I'm all for whatever technologies can help us get through um, yeah. global warming and the various environmental um, crises we have. Um, and But sometimes we believe so much in technology solving things that like a lot of money is spent on some technologies that just don't even seem plausible, but it's like, oh, technology will solve it. Right. Sometimes the natural solution or yes. just limiting. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And, and so we can see this, say, in Silicon Valley with the some of the um, almost fetishistic um, attraction of uh, geoengineering, you know, um, sending clouds of sulfides up into the, into the skies is probably the most famous one example whereby it would screen out the sun, but then you're locked into that. You can never dismantle that. And you can also, um, uh, you, can, you can also control the weather in other societies. So the, the, the opportunities for kind of techno authoritarianism there are huge and, and pretty alarming. But very often people who focus only on technology, we need technology, I totally agree with you, 
but uh, who focus only on technology at the, at the expense of cultural storytelling and image making and questions of environmental justice. I think the technology obsessed people often are looking for the one big thing, you know, whether it's stopping the asteroid or getting to Mars, or it's, it's, it's a bit megalomaniacal. Um, and whatever solution we find or whatever um, path we take that can ameliorate some of the impacts of our emissions, um, that path is going to be a complicated one and it's going to involve many different threads, you know, many, many different uh, directions. There's not going to be one single fix. Uh, it's going to be a pie chart, basically, of, of different strategies and many of them are going to have to be imaginative and cultural uh, in, in addition to the, the sort of purely technological. And do you think that this all sort of harkens back to the the problem of of wealth inequality in in the country? Um, because I, I feel like the the notion that technology can solve all of our problems and that many people are empowered to do so, and it has had many uh, far-reaching advances and and good things. But there's also what you were referring to before as a, a branding problem in terms mm -hmm. of the the notion that money can solve all of our problems compared to to other things do you think that uh this has uh resulted from a like a reliance on market-based and and capitalist-based systems or is this mm -hmm. something that could potentially be changed legislation wise uh in in the future yes so you know much of like as with the green new deal much of the imaginative energy is coming from grassroots how much of that can filter through a, a very jerry-rigged uh, electoral system with electoral college and redistricting and you know gerrymandering all of these things it's, it's a very it's a very big ask to get some of those policies through um particularly when there are so many platforms uh for disseminating disinformation uh, for undermining the science. Uh, so, so I think one of the shifts that I see is again, the kind of bundling of ideas like the idea of debt. So we have student debt, we have housing debt, particularly since the 2008 crisis, housing crisis. Uh, and we also have climate debt, this idea that there's an intergenerational debt that's been saddled uh, and that's been been uh, that's landing on younger people and people who are yet to be born, and so I think that uh, something like debt becomes a binding uh, point for these different constituencies, um, and and I and I do think that is helpful in enfolding environmental concerns into people's everyday living concerns. So, for instance, with uh, the history of racist zoning laws, where mixed zoning for, say, white middle-class communities would typically be business and residents, where for uh, communities of color, very often mixed zoning meant industry and residents. Uh, and so those, those histories have been brought more dramatically to the surface by like the, the movement for black lives. Um, and, and I think that's, that's very helpful. Uh, it may seem like you, you're taking a relatively, a big bit, but relatively isolated issue like the environment and making it harder by asking questions about our model of capitalism. 
but that's the combination of questions that I see uh, being very, very prominent among my students, certainly. Yeah, it is interesting how that uh, phrase resonated. Um, I can't breathe, you know, with environment. I can't, you yes. know, just everywhere. Yeah. And it's also about muzzling ourselves and not yes. being able to speak out. Um, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, I think that I think that we have to both look to, you know, legislators or to push for legislation. But sometimes it does feel like if we wait for that, we have to both, you know, do whatever we can grassroots and locally, because anything that's so big and administrative and um, national or multinational, um, it will be too slow. It's interesting that you also talked about debt because, um, you know, I, I would have thought, you know, we never knew what COVID, I mean, we could imagine, actually, there were a lot of predictions that this could be happening, we sure. were given warnings, yeah, but sure. we, it was great to see when decisions had to be made quickly that they could, you know, they could send checks out to people to make sure that they could continue to stay in their homes. And so there is money in there. And, and so I was speaking to some people and they said that, you know, to tackle some of these issues to do with climate change and the environment, um, sometimes well it, it would it, it was costly but look what was done with COVID that was really costly right right I think yeah so so I've been interested in an earlier book I wrote called uh, slow violence and the environmentalism of the poor I was very much grappling with this question of of time uh, you know the so the climate emergency is both an existential emergency and for most people it's a relatively slow unfolding one not for everybody you know not if you're living in uh, a pacific island with you know a, a, where the highest point is seven feet above above the water um you're you're living you're already living that emergency but for many of us we can kind of kick the can down the road and think well, the climate's changing, but I can still muddle along. Whereas with COVID, the time frame of the emergency was much more compressed. Like we've got to act now or else. Um, and so, you know, clearly, if anything, uh, the, the climate action is even more uh, necessary, more pressing, but um, there is this room for prevarication and even, even inspiring people to act now, we are saying we act now, and in a couple of decades, we may see a difference. You know? And that's a hard psychological space for a lot of people. But I do feel that um, this, this issue has, has moved up the pecking order of concerns for um, young people in particular, and that's young people in, in rich countries and poor countries. Uh, and so I'm very, very inspired by these uh, uh, transnational coalitions that young people are putting together where they're sharing their experiences from Nairobi to Jakarta to, to uh, Dublin and saying, you know, this is how we're different, but this is why all of us are, are making this particular stand. Um, I suppose another thread of that is also this question of intergenerational injustice. And one of the fallouts of that is an unprecedented uh, level of conversation among young people about whether or not to have children. Uh, it used to be that people would, you know, 
people would choose or not choose to have children, but now there's this extra element, um, as, as, as one Australian activist put it, I think she said that um, when, I, when I think of having a child and the, the tiny, um, the sound of the tiny footsteps across my living room carpet, I think of those feet growing into large carbon footprints and what, what is the future of that child in terms of its suffering and in terms of its potential contribution as a child growing up in a wealthy nation, a disproportionate contribution to further impacts. And, and so I, I teach a section on intergenerational climate injustice in my course, and I, and I find students are very, very animated by those questions. Many, many students or you know, people in their, in their 20s and teens, uh, for them, this is an, a really deep issue. Yeah, I mean, it's quite saddening. And I've, I've chosen not to have children, I can't say that it's not. Um, I, I can't say this directly related to the environment. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but it's part it can be par partially, you know, how do I justify it? Right. So, um, but, you know, it's true, a lot of us can't conceptualize maybe 10 or 20 years from now. But it's true that while COVID is a real pressing um, threat, um, so are eight, um, you know, million uh, deaths a year due mm -hmm. to um, air pollution. Right. So right. it's it's here. It's just it, maybe not right next door to us yet. Yes. No, exactly. And, and I mean, there's a gender dimension to that too. Uh, you know, most, in terms of air pollution, uh, it disproportionately affects women in South Asia, the Pacific Islands and Sub-Saharan Africa who are cooking indoors in the case of India, say over the chula, the cook stove, uh, and poorly, uh, poorly ventilated, you've got all this carbon coming out, and it's the women who's crouched over the, over the pot, over the stove for hours every day, and developing these um, laryngeal problems, and, uh, and, and compromising their respiratory systems. Uh, so, you know, in thinking in terms of environmental justice, you're connecting to um, questions of uh, energy poverty and energy insecurity and how women may be affected more deeply by that. Thank you. I'm, I really appreciate all of those in, very insightful comments because it, I feel like it is so interrelated and the problems of the world seem so massive. On a uh, more optimistic note, uh, I would love to ask you what potential advice that you have as, as someone who's been in this arena for uh, a long time at this point what advice do you have to the activists and the people of the the future that will potentially be be dealing with this to stay resilient and, and stay positive over sure. the sure. coming generations yeah well i think to just to remember to to take inspiration from the historical examples of movements that seemed up against it, uh, where, where it seemed impossible to um, shift anything, and then things shift, and suddenly you get a, you, you get a surge, almost a tsunami of change, uh, and uh, 
I can I've, I've lived through at least several examples of that but one was with with apartheid in South Africa you know we've grown up there I thought this is system is locked into stone it's so militarized it's so um, impossibly uh, un, uh, unequal in the in the resources in, in, in the two sides and then it got internationalized and suddenly it shifted uh, we had a new political order I'm sure people in the Soviet Union felt the same thing you know uh, and then I was living in New York in the late 80s and early 90s and lived through the AIDS crisis uh, with, with the sense that um, um, contracting AIDS was, was a death sentence and the demonization of, of um, both homosexuality and actually sexual desire and in a larger sense um, by, the, by the, many of the church leaders and the political leaders at the time, Reagan and his wife. Um, and then we had silence equals death. We had the pink triangle. We had uh, ACT UP. We had um, um, AIDS activists getting involved in accelerating research into antiretrovirals and so forth. And so much shifted uh, very, very fast. Uh, and the, you know, at least in the wealthier countries and in many poorer countries, uh, that particular disease was, was brought under control. Um, similarly, I would have said, you know, when I, having lived most of my life in the US now, I would have said that gay marriage was a, was a non-starter, uh, just like many people might feel gun control is a non-starter now. Um, but the Marriage Equality Act uh, built slowly, and it's built partly as people uh, came out more, and then more um, cis people uh, knew family members or friends or relatives who were uh, out and they, they got involved in, in defending their rights. And so um, these, these, these social movements or, or the, let's, let's put it back, the, put it differently, the, the hegemonic assumptions about what is, is and isn't possible uh, can move and they can move sometimes steadily over time and sometimes quite rapidly. And so, uh, as you, I would, I would love also if you could share with us a, you know, a memory you have of the beauty and wonder of the natural world uh, as something that you keep uh, in your mind uh, in this kind of struggle to uh, tell these stories. Yeah, so um, for me, this is something that's been quite acute in this COVID period was that Many people have found their um, physical environment scaled down. Um, but for instance, in the US, I can't speak about elsewhere, there's been a huge surge of interest in gardening. Uh, gardening stores have done really well during COVID and also bird watching. People have taken up bird watching. And so I think um, because our uh, emotional surroundings are so uncertain, and the epidemiological climate is 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 very is very concerning, if not alarming, at times. Uh, many many people have have found that simply walking out into a natural space and perhaps doing that same walk every few days or, um, gives some constancy to one's life. And I remember the nineteenth-century uh, American natural uh, history writer. John Burroughs saying something to the effect of, 
if you want to see something truly new, repeat the walk you did yesterday, you know. And I think for a lot of people in COVID, um, surviving has, has been helped by, uh, if you have it, access to natural world, repeating the walk, moving through the world. And at a time when many people are um, anxious about socializing with humans, socializing with other living forms that do not have the potential to transmit COVID to us. That's so important because, you know, we do have to take that moment to stop, to do the same thing is not to do the same thing that one has done, it's to see it in a new light. That's really the artistic vision, exactly, isn't it? Exactly, that is it, yeah. Changing the perspective and the natural world is full, full of serendipities, you know, encounters, small things, you know, a, a, a little flower under, under a, a larger leaf that you didn't know was there, a mushroom, a, a bird call, you know, just if you, if you, if you can be present, it can, it can really just, just steady your day. And, you know, it's all about limit, living within limitations, because I think we, so many of us are obsessed with the new, the next big thing, whatever, but actually by appreciating nature, we, we can keep our carbon footprint low and I think, you know, the closer we get to nature, the, that's what's good in us. I, I think, yeah. you know, the, we're not unhappy when we're close to nature. Right, right. No, exactly. Thank you, Rob Nixon, for exposing the human stories and injustices taking place around the world, reminding us also of the beauty of nature, amplifying the voices of environmental martyrs and defenders. By bearing witness to their experiences and honoring their sacrifices, we can develop a counter vision and work collectively for a better tomorrow. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for bearing witness and for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much, Mia. I've really enjoyed talking with you. One Planet Podcast is produced by the creative process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Phil Kehoe, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Phil Kehoe. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.